Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Business Brew. I am your host, Bill Brewster. This episode features Jeremy Raper. Jeremy has been on the show before, but came back. He's doing interesting things in some smaller companies. I highly encourage doing your own due diligence and such as always. But I want to talk to Jeremy because he's gone down a it appears to me a slightly different path than he has been on in the past, and he's going more activist, and he's trying to identify value situations and then get the value out. And I am interested in talking to people like that. So I've known Jeremy a while, and again, here he returns. As always, nothing in this show is investment advice. All of the information contained in here is for entertainment and educational purposes only. Consult your financial advisor before making investment decisions. Do your own due diligence. Thank you to the past sponsors of the show, all of them. I appreciate it. We got Stream by AlphaSense. We got Stratosphere, Coifin, Delupa, my man at Bastier Partners. So thank you to everybody for supporting it. Thank you for your ear and have a good one. Jeremy Raper returns, folks. Uh, Jeremy, how are you, sir? I'm good. Been a while. I'm trying to remember when we last chatted. It was definitely post-COVID. Yes. I can't remember when. It was a long Maybe time. Maybe late, late 2020, early 2021? Early 2021, I believe, yes. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, good to see you. It's nice to see you as well, sir. How's life? Um, I've had better weeks. Yeah? Why is that? It's just Monday where you are. It's, the week hasn't even started. Well, well, sorry. Yeah, I've had better multi-week periods. Let's put it that way. Okay. That's fair. I mean, like, obviously, the geopolitical situation is kind of depressing on many fronts. Um, yeah, so that's that's kind of been weighing on me in a few ways. I'm not sure how much you want to go into it, but I, I heard your pod with Aaron and sorry, I forgot the other gentleman's name, but the other guest yeah, you had on, Stu, talking about the the Israel stuff. Um, that was that was a really great pod. I really appreciated that. But yeah, so so that's been weighing. Um, obviously, the market's been. You know, I kind of been taking on the chin a little bit. The last well, October has been a pretty rough month for me, but um, yeah, you know, swings and roundabouts can't complain. Everything is fine. I'm lucky in the grand scheme of things. So I, you know, what's that quote? Is it a Gandhi quote? Maybe it's not Gandhi, but be kind. Everyone you meet is fighting a harder battle. I, I always try to remember that. So ah, that's very nice. That's true. Yeah, that's I think it's a good be one. kind to others. Everyone you meet is fighting a harder battle. It's words to that effect, which is. Very true for all of us, in, in the West at least. Yeah, that's that's factual. As it pertains to markets, uh, where are you playing around? Because uh, what I have seemed to notice is smaller and less liquidity, at, the, at least from what I see on my screen, just seems to be getting smashed. But maybe there's a reason, I don't know. Look, it's... Uh... It's kind of the same old song, right? Like everyone thought higher interest rates would mean that long duration assets kind of get reevaluated, reappraised. But until very, very recently, it hasn't been that way at all for much of this year, all of this year. And it's really just been the smaller, junkier stuff that's just kind of seen this ongoing liquidity suck come out of it. So look, this, look, if you are playing in that space, call it, you know, I don't want to say deep value, but small market cap or mid to small market cap kind of off the run securities, non-tech, um, never been a better time to do things. 
never been a better time to do things. It doesn't mean <laughs> doesn't mean everything's going to work immediately all the time. I wish it was that way, but finding a lot to do. I mean, finding a lot to do. Frankly, not as much in the US just because it's funny, right? Like I always used to do a lot in the US and I thought it was because the US was the best market for opportunities. But what I realized, it was mostly time zone related for me personally. Huh. Like if I'm, I was sitting in London for four or five years, it's a great time zone to do the US. You're in the office before the US, you see everything. You have a good view of what's going to happen in the US before it opens, right? And yet you're still, you know, it's still midday when the market opens. So you have basically the full you know, five, six hours or whatever of the first of the trading day to kind of understand what's going on in the market. Um, so a lot of it actually was time zone related, huh. I think, because now I find myself in the complete opposite time zone. The market where I live, I live in Tokyo, so the market opens at 10.30 p.m. and 11.30 p.m. during winter. So it's very difficult to watch more than even the open or the first, you know, hour of trading or whatever, if you, if you have young kids. Um, and so I find myself almost, I don't want to say fighting with one hand behind my back because I, I'm not like daily trading or whatever necessarily, but I do find it is a bit of an impediment to kind of staying on top of things when markets get very volatile, if you're not actually, um, in touch with the business day. So, so it, maybe it's less about the actual market trading and more about, well, I need to connect with an executive at XYZ company. You know, he's not going to call me on my business hours. You know what I mean? It has to be on his business hours. But that means, okay, well, his day begins at 10 p.m. my time. So is he going to call me before then? If something's big happening, probably not. So it's going to be his afternoon. So it's going to be 5 a.m., 6 a.m., you know? So it does make it a little bit more difficult to kind of stay on top of some of these situations. So I actually spend a lot less time in the U.S. I have obviously some exposure there. But I've kind of naturally, without even thinking too much about it, focused on other geographies that are more in tune to where I currently live. And in that process, I've kind of become much more active in regions than I never thought I would be active in. So hmm. like, I am Australian by background, but I never thought I would actually invest actively in Australia a lot because I haven't done it since I was like 15. <laughs> and now I come back to the market when I'm 37, 30, I'm 39 now. So I've been doing it for a couple, focusing more on Australia, like more, more, more time for the last few years, you know, and I've been doing it now for two, three years and it's just like a wasteland. Like Australia is like... I think I said on Twitter the other day, Australia is like the land that time forgot from a value hmm. perspective. Like it is a hugely bifurcated market in Australia. You have a huge amount of captive pension money because there's a very strict kind of, it's like the 401k in the US, but it's a very, very strict pension, pension scheme essentially where employers and individuals have to contribute quite a high percentage of their salary towards long-term kind of pension related investments. So it's like seven, eight, it's like it's 8% minimum going up to double digits superannuation it's called superannuation and so over time there's been massive institutions that have grown in australia just going back i think this scheme started post-war so for a very long period of time and i mean the vast majority of this money just goes into the australian market i mean i'm sure some of it goes overseas but it's a large pot of money in a smallish financial system or a smallish capital markets right so you have a very very top heavy market in australia you have a bunch of banks that are typically very very expensive and a bunch of other large caps that, you know, if there's a bit of growth in them and a bit of quality, they tend to get way off the value scale, get very, very expensive. And then at the small end of the pool, there's literally no one doing anything because everyone assumes that anything under, say, 500 million is a shitty junior miner um, or some kind of specky, busted kind of low, I mean, low quality proposition, of which there are many because there is also a lot of dodgy spec miners and stuff like that. So, I mean, you have, you find the most crazy stuff. 
in Australia. Like just the other day, literally the other day. So I'm, I'm not sure when this will go out, but whatever. Anyway, people can look it up as a good case study. There's this company trading at 11 cents called Web Central. I had no position in the stock before this happened. Okay, I had not even heard of the company. Web Central, WCG listed on the Australian Stock Exchange. The market cap is maybe 40 million, 50 million or something. So look, it is tiny. Okay, these things are often tiny, but weirdly liquid. So they announce a transaction where they sell one of their divisions for like three times the market price. Okay. They sell one of their divisions for three times the market price, but they sell two thirds of it or 70% or something. No, I think they sell 80%. They keep 20%. So you put a mark on the remaining 20%. They tell you exactly how much net cash they're getting for the transaction, post taxes, post closing costs, whatever. Okay. And you come up with a number that's like that plus the valuation of the residual investment is like 31 cents, 32 cents. Stock opens at 24 cents. There's no debt. There's no nothing. And, and, oh, sorry. Sorry. And in the press release, they also say the residual business is going to be doing 5 million of net profit. 5 million of net profit. Okay. And the market cap opens at like, I don't know, it, it opened up 150%. Okay. So it opened, it opened, went from 12 cents to 24 cents, 25 cents. 10% of the company traded between 24 and 28 cents. Of course, I hmm. bought a boatload of it. <laughs> uh, but look, it, it's more complicated. I mean, it was not like free, free money at 30 cents, let's say, but at 24 cents, I mean, you're buying it less than the net cash from the disposal. No value for the residual investment, no value for the residual business, which they told you was going to earn. So, I mean, there's a huge skepticism with regard to the residual earnings power of what's left over, right? Because it's, it's a bunch of junk, junky stuff that lost money. So, hmm. um, there is some uncertainty there. I'm not saying it's, you should rush out and get it or whatever. I'm just saying like, as an investment principle, like, this kind of stuff, you know, that, that kind of thing is not that unusual, okay? Like they have, I'll give you another example of one I was involved in where, you know, I actually went activist and kind of we got a lot of value out of it. It's a, a busted oil and gas explorer called FAR, F-A-R. I'm sure people will be familiar with it if they follow me on Twitter, where the company was trading at like 40, 45 cents, okay? They had a bunch of cash and an earnout on a on an soon to be in production oil well in in Africa an earnout because they'd sold their exposure because they had no money so they had to sell their exposure but they kept an earnout that would trigger when the field goes into production okay and very simple math if you just add up the value of the earnout at a punitive discount rate and you add up the cash on balance sheet that's literally all they had i mean they had some weird exploration asset that was worthless okay if you add that all up you get a dollar a share and the stock was sitting there at 40 cents okay no, no debt, just a bunch of cash and an earnout and a, and a shitty exploration business burning some de minimis amount of cash per quarter. So the market is telling you that essentially that the shitty management is going to just go and take that cash and burn it on some other bad investment and you'll never get a dime out of it. Okay. So I'm not saying trading at 40 cents is the problem, but here's where the value is. Okay. So it's trading at 40 cents and then someone bids 45 cents for it. Okay. An huh. activist investor called Samuel Terry Asset Management. Or maybe it was 50 cents. Uh, this is two years ago, so 18 months ago. So I'm shooting from the hip. Um, some activist investor bids like 10% over the current price and says, look, you know, we're going to maximize value, blah, blah, blah. Very vague statement, but bid for the whole company and they'd already acquired like 5% of the company. So I'm just reading the document. I literally found this reading the newspaper. That, that's the other thing. You, you read the financial newspaper in Australia, it's like, it's like gold nuggets left, right, and center. Um, huh. I'm reading the newspaper and they're quoting the CEO of the company, the one who's burnt half this capital, by the way, saying, ah, that offer looks a little bit light, doesn't it? It's a bit cheeky. And I'm like, oh, this sounds interesting. I've never heard of this company. I literally pull out the balance sheet and I'm like, things are worth a dollar a share. Like, they're going to fire everyone. They're going to fire you. 
They're going to send you packing and they're going to pay all the cash out. That's what I would do. So then they're, then they're bidding 45, 50 cents. I'm like, wow, that is cheeky. They should have bid like 60 cents. They're not going to get, they're bidding too low in other words. I'm like, why yeah. don't they just bid through, right? So then I'm like, well, screw this. And I just buy like 3% of the company as much as I can above the offer price. Because I'm like, I mean, why should they do it? I'll do it. <laughs> you know what I mean? We're not, we're not talking Procter & Gamble here, right? <laughs> so, so I bought... You know, I bought a few percent of the company. I didn't buy, you know, I, I, my, my assets are not, you know, limitless, but I, but I tried to buy as much of the company as I could. I essentially explained the investment uh, or the thesis, I guess, to my, my readers. Uh, and then, then I kind of laid it all out in the, in, the, in the public with a letter. I wrote a letter to the board and I said, look, here's the amount of value you've destroyed. Here's why you have no mandate to continue. I advocate for X, Y, Z, X, and, you know, a series of... Um, value additive steps, namely one, board reconstitution, removal of the current CEO. And, and by the way, this this lady had, I mean, sorry to say, it's not a personal critique, but she had presided over hundreds of millions of dollars of waste, a number of horrendous key strategic decisions during and in around COVID. Um, and, and the stock was down 98% in the last five years or whatever, right? And she'd been paid, you know, seven, eight, nine million dollars over that time to do so. Hmm. And, and, and still had bought very, very few shares with, with non-grant, you know, with her own money, non, non-granted shares. She had quite a f- few of them. So she, she had a horrendous track record. She had kind of only managed to maintain her position through the good graces of the um, lackadaisical Australian market, to put it um, mildly. And she had no place running this company. And I kind of called for, one, her removal, board reconstitution, abandonment of all exploration. They had no pedigree in doing it. Um, wind down of all non uh, non you know non earn out operations essentially pay out of all the dividend buybacks you know this kind of thing and, and the stock went from you know fifty five sixty to seventy five eighty seventy seventy five I mean it's still a big discount huge discount but at any time along the way you could have deployed I mean I'll be frank there's a disclosed shareholder on the register now who owns twelve percent of the company who. Uh, who is someone I know and I kind of introduced to the trade and yeah, it took them a year, but they deployed, you know, multiple, multiple millions of dollars into stocks. And the point is it's not liquid, but it's not $5 a day kind of trading, you know? So yeah. he deployed a, you know, seven, $8 million position or whatever over 12 months. And now the stocks at well, they paid out a huge special dip. So dividend adjusted its trading at 88 cents, oh, nice. 89 cents. I mean, e- even though, even though it's obviously taken longer than I thought, <laughs> It's taken longer than I thought and been more painful than I thought. But my point is, look, these kind of things, they're, they're thick on the ground over here. They're thick on the ground over here. So, so I am kind of spending more of my time, much, much more of my time looking at things, not only that are very cheap, but where I think it's actionable, right? Where I'm very confident I can get the value out, right? It's not just about finding the cheapness. It's what is my plan of action to get that cheapness from being some hypothetical kind of ephemeral uh, cheapness floating around in the air like so much vapor or whatever and into my pocket because that delta is the key. That delta is everything. There's so much stuff that is ostensibly cheap or not even ostensibly. That is cheap. You know, there's no debate that it's cheap or even very cheap. But how am I going to get that cheapness into my pocket? That's essentially all I think about these days. Much less time on business analysis. Huh. And the reason I spend much less time on business analysis, one, I'm, I don't even know if I'm that good at it, uh, but also I don't think that's where the value is, at least 
as, as I am a practitioner in the markets, right? Like figuring out is 15 times the right multiple, 10 times, 20 times. That's, that's not necessarily my game. It's a very tough game. Some people are very good at it. But figuring out what is going to change in either the market's perception of the value, like there's a latent cash balance or some asset, understanding what it will take to get that asset sold or valued properly or whatever, you know, it doesn't necessarily have to be sold all the time. Understanding what the market is looking for to revalue the equity to something more reasonable. That's honestly what I spend like 90% of my time thinking about. That and downside, obviously. I mean, downside is part of it, but in terms of actually catalyzing and crystallizing value, that's almost what I'm trying to do, you know, either actively as in, I'm going to try and be the, I'm going to be the straw that stirs the drink to quote Reggie Jackson, or I'm going to figure out how to get someone else to get the money out Hmm. so I can get paid. Yeah. Interesting. How, how has it gone for you? Are you drinking coffee right now or Pepto-Bismol? I got to show you this. This is not planned. This is purely coincidental. I have my uh, Raper Capital mug. There you go. (laughs) Yeah, it's coffee. It's coffee. Good. Um, How's it going? So, look, it's been very good. It's been very good. Um, look, nothing's perfect. Obviously, there have been, as at this far example I mentioned, it's obviously taken a good 12, 15 months longer than I hoped. But even on that longer time frame, the what I would call the not just the absolute return on investment or absolute IRR generated by the investment, but the risk-adjusted return on investment. So, so like, you know, it's one thing to be locked up in something and not make any money. That's not great, but if all along you're not really risking your capital, you consider you're not risking your capital, it's much more palatable to me than making a very risky return and having that be, you know, a market return or even a higher market return, right? So that's that's kind of my allegiance to the deep value school. Number one, don't lose money. So when I entered that fire trade, for example, I thought it was basically, if I could remove management, which happened, that, that happened very quickly, okay? So removing the problematic management and installing someone who is much more sympathetic uh, happened within a month or two months. Did you do and that massively de-risk the investment? Did you do background calls on whether or not like other shareholders' appetite were to remove the management? Right, like absolutely, yeah, absolutely, yeah. yeah. I mean, I I'm happy to go and be the kind of big guy with the big stick publicly or whatever, but yeah, you, you need to. It always helps when you're row, all rowing in the same direction, right? Like yeah. I've been involved in other ones where it's a little trickier, where you kind of have a big stick and you want to go in a certain direction, but I mean, I mean, I'm involved in one right now. Actually, I'm happy to talk about it. It's not, it's not like private or anything, but I'm involved in Alto Ingredients, which is a U.S. name. Oh yeah, A L T O. Yeah, yeah. It's an ethanol. It's an ethanol play. So I, you know, I have a big position there, and I wrote a letter to the board and. Yeah, I've had some discussion with them, and there's a rather vocal, um, there's a rather vocal, and to be fair, larger shareholder than myself on Twitter who has a very different perspective on what the business is worth and what its assets are worth. So, I mean, not to go too off topic, but just to kind of give you an idea of one that worked out and one that may or may not, it's it's yeah. in process, but like you know, it's much more difficult than the fire one, which kind of at least went my way kind of quickly, right? So I wrote a letter, I want to say five months ago. Basically, Alto is a collection of uh, ethanol production facilities. Most, I mean, at this point, about 65% pure ethanol, a third kind of value-added special ingredients. Ethanol is a very bad business, historically highly cyclical. Um, you have a problem because a lot of the production of ethanol in the United States is um, coming out of the farm cooperatives, either owned by the farmers. So it's essentially almost like a loss leader or historically was a loss leader for corn farmers. 
So it doesn't exist to make money selling ethanol into the fuel market, which is the main market for fuel, uh, main market for ethanol as a product, right? Um, it exists to buy corn. <laughs> so you have kind of overcapacity. Historically, you have a lot of overcapacity in the United States, which was only really relieved by the export market. But then Trump came in, raised massive tariffs on a bunch of Chinese stuff, and China stopped taking U.S. ethanol. So it almost closed the Chinese ethanol, China's net short ethanol, Okay. So that kind of distorted the market, you know, after the Trump election, so pre-COVID. Then COVID happened, you got this massive one-time boost because ethanol is used in one of the secondary uses is hand sanitizer, right? It's alcohol, essentially. <laughs> so so the price of hand sanitizer so went up 10x, right? So all these ethanol guys were printing money for two or three quarters and that collapsed. Um, and so you have a very, basically a prototypical, very cyclical, very volatile industry with high cost of capital and high capital requirements. Um, so it's not a good industry to be in. If you pull up the chart of Alto over the last 10 years, you'll see it's down like 95%. Um, it formerly was known as Pacific Ethanol. So a lot of people, a lot of people know Pacific Ethanol. A lot of people know Green Plains, GPRE, yeah. which is a much different story, kind of soured a bit recently, but had transform their business from being mostly a commodity ethanol business to a higher value-added products, uh, food ingredients business, okay? So so Alto is saying they want to go on this journey and, and honestly making some investments to go on this journey, converting kind of commodity-grade ethanol production to higher value-added production and spending a lot of money doing it. Not massively levered, but also not unlevered, okay? So the stock got brutalized at the end of last year when you know they reported some abysmal numbers, ethanol spreads. So the crush margin, the difference between the price of ethanol and the price of corn, essentially, um, absolutely collapsed, went negative for a couple of quarters. We don't need to go into that. This looks like March, basically they March, March of 2023, yeah, it looks so, like. So basically, they reported the 4Q numbers and the, the bottom fell out of the stock. Yeah. Right? So it went from 3 bucks, whatever, to $1.30, $1.40 or something. Yep. yep. You know, so I'm looking at it and I talk to a lot of smart guys who follow the space. And, you know, I don't know too much about ethanol, but... What's interesting is the replacement cost of these assets. At that point, it was trading at like 40 cents a gallon replacement cost for their assets. And even though they have some crappy assets, they do have some very good assets, fully invested, integrated facilities in Illinois. Um, and what makes them quite good is, firstly, they're fully invested. They're wet mills, so it's a, it's a lower cost of production than a dry mill. Uh, and they are producing this value, more value-added products than pure vanilla ethanol. Um, but also it's more the location because where they're located in peak in Illinois is very, very close to some of the best geological formations in the Midwest. So they basically sit above these caves that can be used to store carbon, carbon dioxide. Uh. So because of the, I'm sure you followed the Inflation Reduction Act. Yes. Um, it's like a freebie goodie bag for environmentalists everywhere. It was like, yeah, it was buy one, get one free at ESG land, right? Still that, is. That, that piece of it. <laughs> Apparently, apparently. Yeah. Uh, but no, anyway, so the government beefed up the incentives you get for storing carbon, carbon capture and yep. sequestration is the technical term, okay? So then that set off this massive gold rush for carbon storage plays, okay? Now, what do you need to be a good carbon storage play? You basically, well, I'm not an expert in the chemistry, but there's two basic ways to store carbon. One is, or capture carbon and, and then store it. One is direct air capture, which is stupid expensive and no one's really done it economically. No one. Um, and it's like the most idiotic thing in the world, right? You're kind of going to apply huge amounts of pressure to the air to suck the carbon dioxide out of it and then store it because that's good for the environment, okay? Hmm. Um, that's not what we're doing here. What we're doing is essentially just putting 
something in the tailpipe of an existing ethanol refinery to capture the carbon dioxide that is already spewed out at 99% purity as a byproduct of the fermentation process in creating ethanol. Almost pure carbon dioxide comes out the exhaust pipe. No one ever thought to capture it before. US government's now paying you a massive amount to capture it. If you can capture it, sequester it, and store it in caves that they have to judge will last a thousand years. That, that's kind of one of the ways to think about it. So what do you need? You need really good caves, okay? You need it to be very close to your refinery because as you can imagine, transportation is a huge element. Like if you have some random ethanol facility in the middle of Wyoming, okay, and you got to pipe it thousands of miles to the store, it's not going to work, which is a problem facing a lot of these corn belt related ethanol <laughs> refineries with their stranded assets essentially. Um, but this is not the case. So Pekin, Illinois, where they have their main campus is like 90 miles as the crow flies from Decatur, Illinois. You, you must know this area. You're from Chicago, right? It's not too yeah, far. Yeah, well, when you live in Chicago, you don't really go to these places all that <laughs> all right, often. So, uh, well, it's it's Illinois, okay? So it's, I am, I am uh, aware Archie of Daniels. these towns. I have driven through you, them. You've heard the names. You've, yes. you've, you've driven past them, you've unrolled your window, and you've thrown your chewing gum out on the sidewalk in some of these towns. Right? <laughs> I, do, I do not do that. I don't, I don't litter and I don't throw out chewing gum. But yes, that, that would be the amount of time that I would spend. Well, look, the point is they're in the same neck of the woods as not only perfectly formed geologic formations that could capture carbon, but where actually Archer Daniels Midland is already storing shitloads of carbon. In fact, one of the largest and maybe the I need to double check, it might be the oldest uh, active carbon sequestration sites is literally like 95 miles as the crow flies hmm. from this place. So it's perfectly situated as a carbon play now. Here's, this is all kind of background. I don't know how interested your listeners are, but the whole thesis that I had and have is you have a, quite frankly, um, incompetent or uh, let's say historically massively underperforming management team, okay? A set of assets trading at a fraction of replacement cost with a new tailwind for the broader industry, right? The whole ethanol market has been tightening. Now, so I mentioned that the financial performance was horrendous, um, you know, nine months ago. Financial performance last quarter was pretty good, and this quarter will be excellent because spreads have tightened, excuse me, spreads have expanded, meaning the crush margin on ethanol has expanded, the price of ethanol has gone up, the price of corn has come down. There's a lot of idiosyncratic factors involved, but one of the key is this idea that ethanol is going to be massively tightened in terms of its natural supply and demand because a lot of these ethanol assets are being repurposed to be carbon assets or are being repurposed to be you know, uh, renewable diesel, sustainable aviation fuel assets. And so it's taking out ethanol capacity from, from an oversupplied market, essentially. So the market's doing a lot better because people are seeing the kind of free money fund that the US government is offering um, as an additional and very juicy source of revenues on already invested assets. Now, when you can combine that with assets that were at that time were trading at a tiny fraction of replacement cost, right? If you want to build a new ethanol refinery in the United States today, even assuming you could get the permitting and even assuming it wouldn't take you five years to build it or however long it takes, you know, it's going to cost you $2 a gallon, maybe more. You know, at the time I bought the stock, it was trading at 40 cents, 45 cents a gallon, like below, 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 below the kind of lowest bottom of the barrel, worst quality asset, third party market traded price. So the price is up since then, um, but I mean, it still trades at a big discount to replacement cost, let alone this theoretical you know, added value from, from, transforming, from transforming the assets. But going back to why I raised this whole point, 
Um, along the way, I've encountered uh, a few fellow travelers, but a lot of guys who, I mean, they're religious believers in this kind of this ethanol uh, to to sustainable aviation fuel, ethanol to carbon capture transformation. Like I got into this thing at a dollar forty, dollar fifty because replacement cost, replacement value is six bucks. Okay, and my goal is, well, my goal is still is, but you guys can't manage the assets. You're slightly levered. It's a very volatile industry. You're too small. You can't do this transformation on your own, and you need to move fast because legislation is changing and and evolving. Right? You need to invest to capture these gains. Right? There's a there's a clock or when you need to put this stuff in the ground by, right? So time is important. So I kind of wrote this long letter. It's, it's on my website. It's out there. Everyone can read it. And I said, look, if you sell to a third party now, you can sell your crappy assets at a discount price, whatever. You know, just the, the, the low level that I kind of mentioned, 40, 50 cents a gallon. It's a very low price, but whatever you can, you can trade there. And then your main peak in campus has real value to someone who wants to pursue the carbon opportunity properly, properly capitalized, focused, not distracted by all this other noise. Like they have about 15 different other projects they're trying to do. Hmm. And my point is the carbon capture opportunity is the most bankable one because you have these strategic advantages, locational advantages that cannot be replicated. Okay. So that was my point. And I was like, look, stocks at $1.50, or maybe it was $2 by that time. You could get six, six to seven, maybe more, right? This stock hasn't traded at six in, you know, three, four years. And, and I'll, the registers turned over, by the way. So the vast majority of your shareholders, I think, would support this kind of get the get the replacement value of the assets as opposed to some, you know, home run type bet on the future of all these other disparate options that you're pursuing. So so that was my thesis. That is my thesis. But along the way, it turns out some other uh, investors are telling management it's worth twenty bucks. Mm. Now management doesn't really own much stock. Uh, former CEO owned a, owned a bit of stock, to be fair, but he retired. Um, I think he owned like three, four percent of the company, um, but he retired. Current management, I mean, they own a little bit of stock, but look, uh, uh, look, it's not my, it's not really my place or my way to go and you know denigrate uh, sitting management teams of stocks that I am currently involved in. So I won't do that. But yeah, they they're being told different things from other shareholders. Let's say yeah, and they they don't necessarily want to go in my direction uh, at this stage. So at that point, what do you have? Uh, something where there's a lot of latent value if you can actually transact or if you can kind of run it as you see fit. But otherwise, it's still the ethanol market and interest rates are going up and they're not they're capital constrained. I mean, they have debt and they, they eminently are not kind of, you know, their stock price isn't trading at three, four times replacement value. They don't have a cheap equity currency to fund this stuff. So they're a price taker, not a price maker. Is that where you want to be if they're not going to try and maximize value? I mean, these are these are tough questions. So that's one where, you know, it's it's proving a little bit more tricky at the moment and kind of I'm learning as I go. Hmm. Well, thank you for sharing that. It's easy to come on and only talk about the good ones. I mean, don't get me wrong. I still, I'm still up like 2x or whatever, 2.5x. Yeah, yeah. So but the, we'll call it a disaster. Okay, noted. It's just... It's easy to talk about the easy wins, I guess, right? The uh, the ones that are not as, uh, and I understand you're making money, but um, interesting. That yeah. is something that I so, would I, mean, I would outsource to you. I don't think I would want to do that myself. Well, look, it's it's funny because the very first kind of one that I got involved in, where I decided to kind of go quote unquote public activist. Okay, so I never I never really had this goal to become kind of a 
active. I'm, even this word activist, I don't even know what that means. I don't necessarily like that word. Like, what am I, what am I getting active on? I'm just a shareholder, just explaining how I think management would be best served to, to maximize value. You know what I mean? Like I, I had no intention to kind of take this mantle on and become kind of a public voice crusading for value maximization or better man, you know, whatever it is. But this kind of opportunity showed itself to me a couple of years ago with the whole Hunter Douglas situation where frankly it worked out way better than anyone could have ever hoped or expected. Almost, almost kind of a miraculous type outcome. Um, where I had no right to, by honest, by by rights, right? Because I don't know if you're familiar with, with Hunter Douglas. I I am aware of the brand. I am not aware of the situation. Yeah, well, so 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 Hunter Douglas was a listed company in Holland on the Euronex Amsterdam. Not a small company, by the way. It was like a multi-billion dollar market cap, but it was it was a controlled company. So the founding family, the Sonnenberg family, owned 87% of it. And over a very long period of time, they had been creeping up. I they must have floated at 50, 60 years ago and were always the majority owner. But over the last decade or so, they did a few things to increase their hold on the minorities. They, they reincorporated the business in Curaçao. That's the Caribbean. It's an Amsterdam. It's a Holland territory in the Caribbean. Okay. The Dutch Antilles, it's called. Uh, they reincorporated the business there for reasons we'll, we'll cover shortly. And they kind of crept up the register. They made one or two offers to kind of take out the minorities. So then 2021 comes along, massive boom in, in building products. So Hunter Douglas makes window coverings, right? They're mm-hmm. world leader in window coverings. Huge boom, as you know, in, in new home uh, construction and renovations. So their, their, um, their P&L just absolutely rips. But they're a control company. They don't have the best reporting. They kind of lag. So... You know, the stocks and, and, you know, it's not liquid, right? It, it was trading at like two times EBITDA, two and a half times EBITDA, three times EBITDA, even though the business is inflecting because they own 80% of it, 87% of it. And, the, you know, it trades a million dollars a day or something, you know, historically, maybe slightly more for a, for a you know, $3 billion company or something. And so no one's really paying attention. It's a sleepy, listed on a sleepy exchange, Holland. Um, even though the business reports in US dollars and is overwhelmingly in, it's a global business, but, you know, huge market share in North America, North America and Western Europe, the two main markets, but it's a global business. And um, they're crushing it coming through and out of COVID. They're crushing it, but they don't really report the extent to which they're crushing it, except on a lag. So then the majority owner senses his moment, right? So he comes in and he offers, you know, 62, 63 euro a share when the stock was like 50 euro or whatever, 48 euro. It's like some nominal 25% premium or 30% premium. Board approved deal, you know, take it or leave it kind of thing. Fairness opinion, all the, all the typical kind of ways they screw you. And, you know, I, I didn't find this idea. I wasn't involved in the stock. One of my friends told me about it. I'm just reading through the valuation, right? Reading through kind of the, the fairness opinion. <laughs> and it's like... It's hilarious, right? The bank they get to do the fairness opinion is like Sonnenberg's house banker, okay? Uh, all the guys on the board, like there are five other guys on the board and like only one of them has another board commitment. Hmm. Like you can see there are other boards. It's a typical kind of, you've seen it a million times, right? Like it's a cooked cooked and uh, bought and these, this thing has been bought and paid for five times over by the time it makes it to the market, right? Yeah. yeah. And then, you know, they, they cynically time the deal just before they have to report the latest early numbers, early, uh, uh, quarterly numbers, which, which demonstrate the business is just absolutely crushing it. And 
you know, so they're trying to buy this thing at like three times EBITDA and literally every other comp trades like 10 times EBITDA. We're, we're not talking one or two turns here. It's just blatant robbery, blatant robbery, okay? So then I'm looking at this thing, I'm thinking, well, okay, this is a robbery. They've just offered your typical 25% premium, but it's a controlled company, okay? So there's no real reason, I mean, there's no chance that you can ever really get true quote-unquote fair value um, because they don't have to pay for control. Um, and more than that, the, the technicals around it were tr tricky because in Curacao, the squeeze-out threshold is 90%. Squeeze-out meaning, for people who aren't aware, the level at which they can compulsorily acquire all the other minority shares, which is a protection for minorities because the higher the squeeze-out threshold, the more noise you can make before they forcibly buy your shares. The squeeze-out threshold in Curaçao was 90%, whereas in Holland it was 95%. Mm. So they were already at like 87 point something percent. So all they needed was some small idiots to just give up on it. And they'd theoretically be able to squeeze you out under Curaçao law, although again, there was a complication that had never been tested because under Curaçao law, you also have the right to appeal to a judge against kind of like a dissent right. You have a kind of like a dissent right to go to the court in Curaçao. So... I actually talked to a lot of much larger shareholders. We hired Curacao Council. Sorry, hmm. I should say they hired Curacao Council. I just free rode <laughs> on it. Yeah. Uh, huh. And and they kind of we went through it, and and they were willing to go to Curacao, the law, the courts in Curacao, and basically drag this thing out. That that's how bad this expropriation was. So I said, look, there's a better way to do this. We're just going to shame it. Let's shame these MFers. Okay. Like this is a blatant robbery. Let's call it what it is. Let's put it in the Dutch press. So I managed to get in touch with the Dutch, the Dutch press. Actually, I have I have a deal tombstone over on my yeah. shelf that someone made where they printed out an article where they wrote about me in the Dutch press. It's all in Dutch, and and I used um, I used some colorful language <laughs> in the letter, and I basically said, look, this deal, if it is allowed to go ahead, will be the greatest expropriation of value by a Dutchman since Peter Minuit bought the island of Manhattan for 50 guilders in 1636. <laughs> and they quoted that in the Dutch. They quoted that in the newspaper or they said something like Jeremy Rapers telling the, you know, the main shareholders, giving the middle finger to everyone else. And they wrote in Dutch, they're like, Jeremy Raper had uh, deine, ein middle finger to the same. It was great. It was brilliant. Uh, I didn't know middle finger was middle finger in Dutch. Anyway, so so... They, they raised the deal, obviously. They raised it to like 80 euro or something. They raised it like 20%. You know I mean, the, by the, they raised it from 60 euro to 80, 82 euro. And at the same time, the fair value of the equity had gone from 100 to 150 euro, right? Because keep in mind, one or two quarters later, the, the earnings just absolutely exploded, right? So it actually got cheaper. They raised it to 80 and it was a lower multi. Maybe it went from four times EBITDA to three times EBITDA. So I wrote another letter. <laughs> so I like... Guys, you don't get it. Like last time I wrote the letter, I said a fair value was like 120 euro. Now the fair value is 150 euro. Okay. So actively I've lost value here because you're giving me an extra 15, 18 euro and the fair value has gone up 40 euro or whatever it was, you know. So so then they they conducted the deal, but they, what did they do? They, they didn't end up squeezing you out, which is interesting. I think they theoretically could have or tried to, but they didn't enact the squeeze out provision. Now that was the real kind of weird thing in the whole scenario. I don't know if they were scared about going to court in Curaçao, which they would have had to do, or more likely there's a nefarious explanation, which I'll, I'll shortly cover. But they, they anyway, they went from 87% to like 92% or something. So theoretically, they, they thought they could have squeezed you out, but they didn't. They said, we're just going to leave the other 8%. 
So then like literally three months go by, not that long, three, four months, nothing happened. And at that time, I, I kind of publicly said, look, everyone who wanted to sell this thing at any level below 85 just sold it, right? Fair value is so much higher here. Like this is the time you want to be loading the boat, right? Like, yeah, you might have to wait a year because in Dutch securities law, you have to wait a year between offers, right? So, so I said, you might have to wait a year, but I mean, fair value is like 150, whatever it was. You know, so I, I, I said this on Twitter, you know? And then three months later, December 30th, December 31st, 2021. Yeah, end of 2021. It, was, it wasn't long. It was like three months later and maybe six months after the first offer. Six months after the first board approved bid at 63 euro a share. They sold the entire thing to a third party at 175 euro. I wow. should be not. So they basically... So And then I found out later on, I mentioned this on another podcast, that the 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 family um, the main shareholder the the Sion of the family not the Sion the legacy main guy who's very old lives in Westchester New York okay he's Dutch Dutch American but he his business is listed in Holland but he spends most of his time in New York I mean one of these global captains of industry he lives in Westchester in the same neighborhood as the buyer 3G Capital hmm. bought this business. So look, I have no evidence to support this, but given the le- exact the play-by-play and how it went down, it's hmm. reasonable to conclude he was playing at the country club with his three G buddy. He's like, yeah, I'm. You know, he's he's old. He's retiring. He's doing his tax planning, whatever. He's like looking for an exit. They have a conversation and or an agreement. He's like, you know what? I'm just going to buy it from the minorities and squeeze an extra six hundred million dollars out, or whatever it was. And that was his plan. Like he had a pocketed bid from a third party that it was always his plan to sell. And he was just going to rape his minorities while he was doing it. But that was the original plan. In the end, the minorities got 175 or the ones that didn't sell. Hmm. And so, as I said, that was kind of a kind of a home run, miraculous outcome that I had no right to because it was a controlled company all along. And I think I learned the wrong lessons from that. Meaning I thought that you have these situations where you make a plaintive enough argument in the public domain, doesn't matter what the ownership structure is, you know, you make enough noise, they're going to come to you. That actually was not the right lesson. It was the exact opposite. Um, <laughs> so, because I got involved in a few other ones in Indonesia or whatever, where, uh, where you had a similar situation as a majority owner taking out the minorities and you know, you couldn't apply the same kind of pressure or they just didn't care. So that was, that was exceptional in more ways than one. Um, but that kind of also opened my eyes as to the possibilities around this kind of what I call social activism. This idea that even if you're not Bill Ackman or David Einhorn or Dan Loeb or Nelson Peltz, you don't need to own, you know, 5% of the company, 10% of a multi-cap to, to actually make a difference. Because, look, if you are uh, uh, um, efficient and, in getting your word out and if you have something good to say – people will pick up on it on social media. So you can actually speak to a larger portion of the register over time than your own 1% or 2% holding. So, you know, I used to, and FAR, for example, is a good example. I really only had a couple percent of the company, but I could essentially speak to a much larger portion of the register at some point because I was in touch with um, hmm. with like-minded fellow travelers, let's say. Yeah. Um, and so... That kind of opened my eyes to that possibility, and that's something I do a lot more of. But now I'm trying to take it one step further, and that is actually have more bullets in my gun. So not just buy like one or two percent, tweet about it, talk about it, write a few angry letters, or you know engage with the management 
but owning one or two percent. But it, now I'm actually trying to venture into this area where I raise SPV, special purposes vehicles, to acquire meaningful stakes in companies if there's liquidity available or if there's a block seller or what have you. Um, and then it then it doesn't become a discussion or it shouldn't become a discussion. It's basically, look, if I own 20, 25, 30% of the company and I'm the major shareholder and I have a certain agenda, you know, provided the shareholder register is, you know, is um, amenable and provided the board structure is amenable and not staggered or all the rules are amenable, I mean, it becomes less of a discussion, more of a dictation at some point. You know what I mean? Um, which which goes back to my point about focusing on extracting the value. Like, I used to be cool with if it, in in Hunter Douglas's case, it was it was cheap enough. It was so so cheap, right? That you could still be a minority and live with the risk that, like, at sixty five euro or whatever I paid, you know, the worst case was they were going to bump the bid twenty percent or whatever it was, right? To to just get it over the line. And then, so it became a different trade later on, but. Initially, when you risk that first bit of capital, it was just so cheap that you could take the risk of being a minority in an unfavorable jurisdiction, in an unfavorable capital st- uh, corporate structure. Um, that's often not enough for me now. Okay, I want to be the major- majority shareholder or one of the largest voices at the table, and you know I, I'm happy to pay more for that even because that's really the only way I see that that I can guarantee, not guarantee, there's no guarantees, but I can maximize my chances of getting the value, as I said, from this ephemeral kind of conceptual value on paper uh, into my pocket or my or my investors' pockets. So that's why you want to raise the SPVs. Yeah, yeah. So I raised an SPV recently and this is live, this is public disclosed, I've made the filings. So I'm not going to talk about the strategy or specifically the company, but, you know, um, yeah, I've raised I've raised money and have taken ma- entities I manage have taken a twenty something percent stake in a listed aircraft leasing company in the UK called Avation AVAP. This is this is all public filings, um, and you know my goal is to maximize value for all shareholders. It's a very it's a very it's ostensibly a very cheap equity, and um, I have a number of ideas to to kind of create value for all shareholders. And I think I think having more bullets in the gun, so to speak will be beneficial to, to all shareholders of the company. You have a history of leasing uh, in that space, if I recall correctly. Well, actually, I got leasing very, very wrong in COVID. Um, it was one of the reasons why I was kind of almost on my knees during COVID, the first part of COVID, because I had an outweight, overweight position in AirCap, which obviously went tits up very quickly. Um, I've said this before, it's very rare you'll, in this business, it's very rare you'll be forced, you know, you know, in Texas Hold'em poker, there's that famous quote in Rounders where he says, uh, what does he say? He says, um, the key in Texas Hold'em is to force your opponent to make a decision for all his chips. Yes. Right? Yes. It's rare to think about that in the context of investing, but it does happen and it's scary. So I would say that in COVID, if you remember correctly, I'm sure you do because you're a market practitioner, um, you had two weeks. You had a two-week period where you had to make a decision for all your chips, okay? Meaning the price was moving so fast in a lot of these, anything touching travel, anything touching movement, okay? The price was moving so fast. You literally had a period of days, not weeks, not a month, not a quarter, days to decide, is this equity impaired or not? Very, very difficult. Very scary, actually. I remember I had a conversation with one of my friends here in Tokyo. I was visiting Tokyo at the time, living in London, visiting Tokyo, two young kids. Told you to get out, right? 
Horrendous. Yes, yes, yeah. So I go to lunch with this guy and he's, he's on the front lines. He's like running a bank, running the equities desk of a bank. You know, things are blowing up. S&P was literally gapping down 10% a day, right? Maybe you had the odd day. Every fourth day would go up 5% because Trump said something idiotic, I remember. Like, it's all fine. And then, and then on day five would go down 10% again. And that happened for, it wasn't, it wasn't actually that long. I mean, it's 15, let's say 15 trading sessions in a row. You had this absolute pandemonium. Uh, anyway, so during one of these days, basically the bottom, either the bottom or two, three days, but I went and had lunch with my friend. I, and I, you know, I'm down like bad. I'm down like 65%, 60% on the year. You know, I just been doing this for a couple of years, full time from my last hedge fund gig. Didn't have a lot of money. Um, I was looking down the barrel, having to go back to, if, if things didn't bounce back, I was looking on the barrel, having to get a job, God forbid, <clears throat> and go back to work for someone else not really my style. Uh, so I was kind of down and out, so to speak. And, um, I sit there and I said, I'll leave his name out of it. Cause just, just for, just for safety. But he looked at me and said, he said, Jeremy, get out. You have to get out. This is the apocalypse. Like he, he literally went to his Japanese bank and withdrew all his yen in cash. Wow. Like, a million dollars wow. of yen in cash. He had this massive suitcase full of yen and he was moving it from his bank to another bank because his bank was the, the shitty local bank that paid more, a tiny bit more interest and he was moving it to Nomura or something. Huh. I mean, he's a foreigner, but you know, he was, you know, he was a yield chaser or whatever. And he was moving, he's like, I gotta, I gotta move it to a safe. <laughs> and I said, dude, like, I literally looked him in the face and I said, you may well be right. You may well be right, this is the apocalypse. But if I sell all my shit now and it's not the apocalypse at yeah. these prices, oh, I'm screwed. You know what I mean? It's called almost yeah. like it was so priced in, right? And by the way, I did sell a lot of stuff. Obviously, I took I took a lot of pain, but I managed to rotate it into stuff that was, you know, more attractive or more levered to the rebound or whatever it was. And so I actually had a great year in 2020 which is a great lesson actually for anyone that's kind of down and out because in March, 2020, I was down at least 60%, maybe 65 at the lows. And I ended up 2020 up 75%. Wow. So it was like an almost a 10 X growth in my account from low to high that I measured. Um, now, don't get me wrong. We're not talking hundred million dollars here. You know, we're talking no, very small numbers. I understand, but dude, it would have been easy but, for you to blow out at the bottom there and you stuck to your guns and you bet and it, Paid off, and that's good. Yeah, I mean, we so what's got, supposed we got, to happen when you when you bet and you're right? Uh, yeah, I mean, on individual security. Because I re I remember you talking about that. Yeah, I remember you talking about that, and you said if I sell now, I'm selling at a discount to replacement value, and or, or not not, not Liquid, yes, I mean, liquidation, liquidation. That's right, price. liquidation. Yes, yeah, yeah. and like I just I can't I can't do that. Yeah, but so the point was, I did actually lose a lot of money on AirCap though, because one, my entry point was much, much higher. And of course, I didn't ride it all the way back. I did take the losses. I mean, so yeah, I didn't sell at $12 a share, but I sold a bunch at 20. I sold some more at 25. I sold some more at 30, you know? And yeah, that capital, don't get me wrong, that capital got redeployed into other stuff that did better. So I'm not, you know, I'm not complaining, but I definitely, what I'm, I'm, what I'm trying to say is I'm not like some aircraft leasing savant. Um, I'm I've just saying you're aware of it. A lot of money in the past. Yeah, oh, yeah. I thought you said I was uh, the expert on all things. Uh, that's what I heard. Well, obviously, obviously, that's why you're on a podcast with me. But um, no, I, ju I just I know that you've had a history of following that space. Right. What's your view now? Years out. What's your view of the GE deal now? Years out, dude. So 
It's funny. I think the last time we chatted on it, I said some really bearish things about that deal. Or I was, look, also, there's a huge amount of context that, that people need to understand, right? Like the last time we chatted was right in the teeth of the COVID aftermath. Okay. So Aircap, a business I know pretty well, had made this whole song and dance about being these great underwriters of credit. Okay. No one understands credit like Aircap. <laughs> and being great at selecting counterparties. Then they went through COVID, and what happened in the first three months of COVID? Basically, three or four of the largest bankruptcies, they were disproportionately hit. Air Lease, their number one, well, one of their larger competitors on the public space, was unscathed. So Norwegian blew up immediately. LATAM blew up immediately. Um, there's got to be two or three other ones that I, I even forget. But no, I mean, their underwriting of credit risk was disastrous. And I'm not even sure it's the fault of their credit department. It's just that when you're that big, this is what I learned. When you're that big and you have 1,000, 2,000 planes, you don't pick your clients. They pick you. Like you have to deploy the assets, right? Mm-hmm. If, you're, if you're trying to maintain Makes your sense. fleet and, and or grow, you have to – they pick you. So like you almost have to lease to – if not everybody, then almost everybody. So it's like I'm not – I mean it's not really a critique of their credit department so much as the business model or the size of the entity. So – that was front of mind in you know early 2021 when we spoke. Well, yeah, whenever it was, that had just happened. That had just been going on. Um, and by the way, they, they they managed the business quite conservatively on the balance sheet side. Like they were never overly levered for, for these businesses for a financing business, right? Um, but their their whole kind of investment um, pitch to the market was, oh, we're these great underwriters of credit. We've never experienced a loss greater than X percent on any given counterparty. We're really good at repossessing assets, whatever. Some of those points kind of fell by the wayside, honestly, during COVID. Now, I'm not going to say I've come full view. I'm not going to say I've come full view, but I have kept up on the company. And what they've done recently has been absolutely incredible. Like, I literally just just the other day, I read their, their latest report, their quarterly report. They crushed it. It's been a long time since I've seen a quarterly report this good across companies in terms of outperformance in the quarter, what they said about the market, um, their positioning versus others and what they're, you know, walking the walk, so to speak. What about their positioning is interesting. Well, they're, they're uniquely positioned in that, okay, th- there's a huge supply demand imbalance in the global aircraft, passenger aircraft market right now. Because, Turns out if the uh, COVID yeah. shutdowns mess up your entire supply chain in aerospace, shortages occur. I- exactly. <laughs> For, yeah, exactly. Putting it simply... New planes are just not getting built. Well, they're not getting built on the schedule that the OEMs thought they could build. Um, and even the ones that are in service, the MROs are massively backed up. Okay, so when you take a plane out of service and it needs to go to the shop for maintenance, MRO is maintenance, repair, and what's the O stand for? Something I thought else. it was a maintenance repair organization, but I could be totally wrong yeah, yeah, on that. Yeah, that, that, that could be. You, you take the plane out of the air and it goes to the shop. That used to be a 60-day process, whatever it is, that's two, three, four X that now, right? They can't get parts. They can't get labor. Same story, um, basically, no matter where you look. And um, Oh, it's overhaul. So, Sorry, maintenance, overhaul, repair, and overhaul. overhaul. Okay. Silly so, me. Another word for maintenance, basically. Yes, that's right. <laughs> um, and repair, kind of. Maintenance, maintenance, and maintenance. That's right. Uh, but yeah. 3M Triple was taken. M. <laughs> yeah. So 3M right. was taken, yeah. Um, so... So look, they're in this fortunate position of having the largest global fleet with the most options, Um, not just by a factor of their size. They actually made the decision to step into a lot of orders in 2020. One thing I also 
did not as did not appreciate at all at the time. So they stepped into a decent audible position, not quite in the teeth of the crisis, but almost, um, and basically made a bet that they could take delivery on planes, near-term deliveries. That would be that would be now very very desirable, right? So they're I actually don't understand why the stock is trading where it is. Like I should probably go out and buy some. I haven't owned it since COVID, right? I have this huge scarred tissue there, but. They literally go on the call and they say, we sold assets in the four. And, and by the way, a lot of assets, not just like one or two planes. Like they sold um, 600 million worth of assets. Yeah, in the what, like a 24% gain? Yeah, 24% gain on gross. On a levered basis, that's two times book equity. The book And, and the net book, the tangible, net to tangible book today is like 80 cents on the dollar in the market, right? So he's like, look. I sold it a 25% gain on sale on a gross basis. Historical average of the last 10, 15 years is 8 to 10%. So typically sell assets at 1.1 times gross. They're selling them now at 1.25 times gross. That translates into two times book equity versus historical 1.3 times book equity. So a huge premium because people need planes. People need planes and airlines are actually proactively going to their lessors and saying, I want to buy in these aircraft or they're extending the lease. So that's the other key takeaway from the call which about the positioning. 80 to 90% of leases, 90% of wide body renewals that are coming up are being extended. This is, I haven't seen numbers like that in the last six or seven years. Wide bodies have been chronically oversupplied pre-COVID. Wide body planes, much trickier value proposition because obviously they're larger, they have more limited uses, they're only used on long haul routes, they can only be used at certain airports. A lot of older, tip, you know, some wide bodies, they actually cannot land at certain gates, whatever, because they have the wrong configuration of doors. Like, Double-decker planes, you don't see them that much anymore because it's very difficult actually. From a traffic perspective, where do you actually park them? You need certain very sophisticated airport gates with like double-decker walkways, you know what I mean, that not, not many airports actually have. So this is the reason why kind of like the 747 or even some of the newer Airbus, I think it's the A, it's the A360 the or the A350. What, the, the 380 is what died. The double. I'm trying to think of the double-decker one. Not yeah, the, I think that was the 380. The, I think. Yeah. Well, that thing these, was freaking massive. Planes, actually, it couldn't like land at certain areas because the, the runways weren't long enough. They're right? unwieldy. They're very unwieldy. So like the wide body market historically had been very, very um, more volatile, less dependable and oversupplied, frankly. Uh, and now it's like actually crushing. I mean, temporarily, the demand is off the chain because airlines want to lock in lift. They have to lock in lift. Uh, and so, look, obviously, why, this is what happened with the wide bodies. I don't that I don't fully understand because I thought that um, one of the risks to wide bodies, I, I thought the story in like 2019 was that the 737 and the A330 were going to be adequate or A320 were going to be adequate to handle like, you know, New York to London. Right. And that's a yep. that's a flight that's typically wide body. But turns out that's not what ended up happening or hasn't happened well, yet. Remember the 737 MAX has been chronic issues that go yeah. back before COVID with yes. quality. So that whole delivery schedule is four or five years delayed, essentially. Hmm. So and, and also, sorry, also a lot of those orders got canceled. So in the process of fixing the 737 MAX issues, a lot of airlines just killed their orders and are then now relying on either wide bodies or or other narrow bodies. But you have a combination of things. One, 737 MAX issues, two, general maintenance issues three, supply chain issues, and four, massive rebound in travel. So actually, international travel has come back pretty strong um, at kind of this bad moment for for a lot of the, the airlines um, in terms of capacity. But 
but yeah, so so look, the business is doing very well. I mean, I'm not saying it's going to continue uh, ad infinitum, but yeah, they're crushing it. They're being very clear on their capital allocation priorities. If the GE stake was not still in there, so they've gone from 45% to 15%. Aircap repurchased, I think, 18, 19% of the shares outstanding at the beginning of the year in the last nine, 10 months. Yeah, that's crazy. Pretty good. Yeah, so, I mean, no one no one wants this business. It's been a publicly listed business for 10 years, uh, more, 20 years. Um, and, you know, when was the last time the equity traded above book value? It's got to be a decade ago. I mean, I've been moaning about that for, for over a decade. So it's like, it fits perfectly into David Einhorn's bucket of where, I mean, by the way, this isn't some shitty small cap situation that I moan about, right? This is, you know, what is it? This is a close enough to seven, $8 billion company now. Market cap wise with a $15 billion, you know, it's $12, $13 billion book value, I want to say. I, I'm, I'm sure I need to look up the numbers so I could be way off, but it's- I don't think you're way off. Um, maybe a billion here or there, but what's a billion among friends? Exactly. Let's see. <laughs> it's uh, eminently tradable, eminently liquid, eminently investable for anyone on the planet in size. And 12 billion market trades cap. Where it does. 12.6. 12. Okay. So 12 against a $15, $16 billion, $16 billion book value. Right. Yeah. And about 40 billion of assets and under 40 billion of assets. That makes sense. Okay. So yeah, I mean, it's, it's one of those things where, you know, if a tree falls in the forest and no one hears it, did it happen? So look, market's been 2022, 69.7 billion of gross assets. 69 bill. That's, that's 20, that's 1231. Gross, gross, gross. Well, yeah, it's total assets. Well, they really did buy a lot of planes. (laughs) Yeah, that's wild. <laughs> it's funny. The other thing with the GCAS deal is they went into all these other verticals that they said were shitty. That's the other thing why I was anti the deal. So it's like they said, ah, oh, we'll never get into helicopters. Helicopters is a horrendous market. It is. We'll never get into freighters. Freighters sucks. It is. But I mean, you know, whatever. But at the margin, it doesn't matter because those are tiny relative to, to the rest of the asset pool. Something, again, I underappreciated. Yeah. Um, huh. So yeah, they're, they're, they're doing very well. But I mean, it is the haves and the have nots, right? Like, they're still funding, their net spread went up, meaning the difference between the average lease rate they receive on a yield base. So if they have 100 of assets in the market and they get 80 a year, that's an average lease yield of 8%. It's much higher than that, but just doesn't to explain the math. Their average lease yield minus their cost of financing, that's called their net spread, that went up in the third quarter, despite you know everything that's going on with interest rates, right? So they're managing to pass on the cost of higher interest rates to their customers. And it's not showing up in credit yet, meaning they can charge, instead of charging 12, 13% yields, they're charging 15% or whatever. And they're not having to take huge impairments at all yet. But that's that's their situation. Like if you're a smaller lessor with a smaller platform, with less resources, with less bargaining power, less flexibility, like maybe you have to enter into below market leases to to maintain your customers or... Maybe you entered into below market leases during COVID and those haven't rolled off yet. And now all of a sudden your debt, your cost of debt is going up with the yeah. interest rate curve. And you're stuck offering, you know, you're stuck. It's kind of like a bank. It's exactly like these banks where they kind of enter into fixed financing relationships, fixed financing relationships on the asset side, but are not as fixed or on the on the liability side and the spread's just getting crunched. So it's the haves and the have nots. The haves yeah. and the have nots. They're crushing it. But a lot of other guys, a lot of the private guys are not doing so well. There are a couple of guys that actually got restructured recently, but no one, no one would be interested in that. <laughs> it's, uh, off, it's like not public stuff. 
Do you have uh, any type of like business quality filter that you will or will not dabble in? I don't know if I have a quantitative one, <laughs> maybe a slightly qualitative one, but I'm not, I'm not interested in business quality in and of itself. Okay. It means very little to me. Like all these people spouting off on Twitter about how good a business it is. It means nothing to me, independent of price, literally nothing. It's the, it's, it's kind of like saying this is a beautiful Ferrari, right? Yeah. But if I have to pay $10 million for a Ferrari, then why are we even talking about it? I mean, we're not in the business of, uh, we're not in an art gallery, right? We're not admiring beauty or quality in its abstract sense, you know? So yeah, I've never been, and I understand that people, I mean, they look up to Buffett and how he's pivoted and how he's made quality kind of his um, touchstone. Right. And, Look, I think people kind of learn the wrong lessons, honestly, in observing a lot of the greats. That's not to say it can't work for a lot of people. I know a lot of people who only do quality and do very, very well. But me personally, just what appeals to my personality and what I found works for me, filtering for quality has never really been a big part of it. I think that uh, what what I have, I guess the reason that I have tried to implement some sort of quality filter is... I found that the earnings are somewhat more predictable, but but maybe maybe statistics like studies might prove my feeling differently. Um, and certainly the experience that I'm living through in charter might uh, ask me how much I understand quality for real. So that's fun. What did Howard, what did Howard Mark say? There's no business good enough where at the wrong price, it cannot be a statistical loser. And there's no business bad enough where at the right price, it cannot be an amazing investment. I mean, it's just, that's all it is. It's not quality alone. And it's not price alone. It's price versus quality. Yeah. It always has to be the way. That's why I find these people who, a lot of people, you know, and this is a common way to teach analysts when they're coming up, they'll get sat in a room, they'll be given a company and they'll be told, don't look at the stock price. So they're not able to look at the stock price. And they'll be asked to value the company. And to understand what uh, what they think the valuation is, and from a pure intellectual exercise, I understand that that's valuable. To understand, you know, kind of your opinion or what you think independent fair value should be, but for an experienced practitioner, that you you, you can't do that. I mean, you have to filter based on price because price is what you pay. <laughs> so there's no point in there's no point in doing all, all the work and it takes, a, obviously it takes a huge amount of work to get fluent on even a single company to the extent that you're ready to make an investment or countenance making an investment without reference to price. I mean, that price is everything. Price is everything. If price wasn't everything, we wouldn't be in this game. Well, I, I think, I think A, you're right. But I, I guess that some of the quality people that I talk to that I think do it well use the their understanding of the quality to force rank the odds that they perceive there to be right so maybe maybe uh it provides overconfidence that's that's very possible i don't know yeah i mean i don't want to speak too generally i mean this is just what works for me so i'm not trying to have a go at anyone who has a different approach not at all um what i would say is that quantitatively speaking if you have this kind of quality bias, now is probably the worst time to maintain that in the last 20 years, right? I mean, when has quality been more expensive relative to not quality? Isn't this what Cliff Asness is always talking about? I mean, small cap value versus large cap growth. So Jake Taylor is talking about 
That's what Toby's talking about. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. You guys talk about this a lot. So it's like, on the one hand, great. On the other hand, that's kind of, I don't want to say it's resulting because, hey, if you've done it well enough for the last 20 years, you should have made a shitload of money. But ex ante, would you want to engage in a game where, based on pure factor alone, the factor for which you subselect as the pool from which to begin to pick is already trading at a 20 year higher, you know, versus on a relative basis versus the other pool? We're not picking tech, but yeah, I agree. I agree with you. Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't... Again, that doesn't mean you can't make money. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think it's hilarious, though, when people say, like, everything's priced in, and then, like... <laughs> I always give the example of Apple. <laughs> Apple in 2007, when they released the iPhone, like, literally anyone in the entire Western world could have gone into a store, picked up an iPhone, picked up a BlackBerry, or a Nokia, or whatever it was. Literally anyone. Just, just play with the phone for an hour, then play with the Nokia for an hour. And then just gone and bought Apple and shorted Nokia. In, a, in, in as much size as anyone could have wanted to have done. But, but the market, you know what I mean? It's like people always ask me, like, what's your edge or what's your, you know, what special skill set do you have? You know, and I'm just, I always go back to that Apple example. I'm like, you know what? You just think clearly. You, there's easy wins out there. There's easy wins out there if you just block and tackle. Yeah, of course. You know, the best the best surgeon in the world has a couple of tricks up his book over the next other best surgeon, but he's not he's not running from a different playbook. He's just looking at the same playbook and doing it a little bit better, a little bit faster, a little bit more insightful. There's not some secret sauce, you know what I mean? It's Yeah. So I mean that's kind of a rambling answer to your question. <laughs> no, I like point, it. But I think about that a lot. Well, I just ask because, you know, you talked about like ethanol and um you know, those those can be scary businesses. So I think the price you pay has to be like real fucking cheap. They're scary businesses and that affects the entire investment strategy. That is why I'm advocating the course I'm advocating. And yeah. oh, and don't get me wrong, if or when it becomes clear to me that course is not viable, see ya, baby. Yeah. I'm not I don't stick around to see how if they stick the landing, you know? This goes yeah. for everything. I think like Puppy's quite good at that. Like you have a thesis. That thesis is not like, it's definitely not based on quality. It based, might be based on some fundamental inflection or change in the perception of the equity. In his case, he likes to do this thing where he, you know, again, similar kind of, it doesn't really have to be quality or oftentimes it's not quality. The junkier, the better because you get it cheaper. But irrespective of that, his point is you're going to try and catch a change in the perception of a given asset class or a given equity, a given company or, or a commodity, whatever. And you can catch that. And as it goes from shitty to less bad to okay you make multiples yeah and guess what if that inflection if that doesn't happen or if there's some counter bit of evidence see ya you know what i mean like don't stick around so yeah i i, I mean these these are we're speaking in general I, it's also funny this thing about investing is like everyone loves to speak about general rules or lessons or what i follow but the more i learn about investing the more i learn almost everything is idiosyncratic at least the way i practice it that's not to say my skills are not replicable, not at all. But every situation is quite nuanced and has its own unique characteristics that need to be weighed and examined. So like take this Spirit Airlines situation, okay? I don't know if you're involved in the Spirit JetBlue merger. Very, very tiny in my IRA. I okay, have okay. a call spread. But you're, but... you're familiar with the, yeah. the, the strands of the case. Okay, so so... There is a lot in common with this, with other 
precedent, not just airline transactions, but other precedent merger litigated DOJ cases. Okay, so I'm sure you've probably heard that the government's case is maybe stronger than a middling case, but post the defestitures um, looks quite similar in analogous terms to the Asa Abloy Spectrum case that the DOJ also pursued. You've probably heard that that analogy drawn. I have not heard that analogy, but I have okay. I have looked at what JetBlue has been doing to divest assets, and it actually kind of reminded me yeah, of, yeah. Um, in a way, like AB InBev and SAB Miller. I mean, it seems to me that if you're willing to divest of enough, you can usually get these things across the finish line, and they seem willing yes. to do so, it. So, exactly. So, so there is a what a, there is a pattern, a historical pattern of kind of merger cases that have been pursued by governments to stop them happening on antitrust grounds. And there's a historical precedent in terms of how you can accomplish that merger. So how you can uh, alleviate the concerns, assuage the concerns of the government. As you suggested, one of the typical ways is through divestiture of assets in, in markets that are deemed to be too concentrated, too anti-competitive, what have you. We've also have a long discourse of how the current uh, political regime is, is extremely anti-merger, is kind of going off the reservation with regards to how they pursue and litigate antitrust law. Okay, so what I'm saying is this case exists within the context of all these other kind of cases. You can draw learnings from them. You can uh, maybe not draw conclusions, but you can definitely apply the knowledge you've learned in all these other cases and other kind of uh, um, airline-related stuff from from prior administrations, whatever. So sector-specific stuff um, to kind of come to a reasoned, logical conclusion. Nevertheless, I would still argue there are so many idiosyncrasies with regards to this specific merger that it is that it's unique. I mean, it's and, and you know this is unique, but I, what I'm trying to say is a lot of these things end up being quite unique. There's two or three factors that are key to the outcome here that are not really replicated in other cases, right? So, so for example, I'll take the JetBlue case. Um, JetBlue. JetBlue's trying to acquire a spirit as of this moment. Hopefully this doesn't age <laughs> poorly. But it's very rare for a company to proceed to argue a court case to be allowed to do a merger that if it is consummated on current financial terms will immediately put JetBlue in severe financial stress. Severe. So like if this merger gets concentrated on announced terms right now, JetBlue goes 10x levered, net levered. Okay. Spirit's last report, and by the way, I'm long Spirit stock, okay? <laughs> this is a fact. Spirit's last report was an absolute abomination, abomination of a report. They went negative EBITDA. They said they will definitely be negative, mean, in, in a manner of speaking, they said they'll be negative EBITDA in Q4. There's a chance they'll be maybe not negative EBITDA in 2024, but I mean, consensus EBITDA is going to go down 50% for next year, okay? And they're burning cash. Um, now, there are, there are explanations for what's going on, like, 25%, not 20 yeah, at one point next year, 25% of their fleet will be on the ground because they can't get the geared turbofan issue, inspection issue from Pratt & Whitney done in time because Pratt & Whitney, speaking to our earlier discussion, Pratt & Whitney cannot get the shop inspections done. The, the turnaround is being massively extended on those inspections. So those engines have to stay on the ground. Well, guess what? Those P&W 1100-powered A320neos that are in that are in Spirit's fleet, they're their most fuel efficient, lowest cost fleet. Demand is soft, massive discounts. They're forced to run a high cost fleet with huge overhead of keeping a bunch of their planes on the ground all through 2024, probably through 2025 as well. Um, all swell demand is falling in the toilet for broader economic reasons. Now, 
That's not unusual, but the fact that the acquiring party has this strong strategic interest in doing this deal for like a 5, 10, 15, 20-year forward plan, right? That's basically what they've articulated. This is like a a once-in-a-generation type trade. That is butting up against the financial reality that if this deal closes, the day it closes, they will immediately be highly distressed. Not Maybe not going concerned because JetBlue has some unencumbered assets and has and actually JetBlue is doing a lot better or was doing a lot better than, than Spirit, but they will become highly distressed. So you have this very complicated situation where JetBlue fought for this transaction aggressively in a different market environment, still believes theoretically in, well, yeah, everyone <laughs> believes in the transaction until they don't, but theoretically as of the most recent statements, pre-trial briefs, very strongly in the logic, the industrial logic of this transaction and it's willing to lay it all out there, but they're admittedly paying the wrong price. And they're paying the wrong price to such an extent that it could bankrupt them. It feels to me a little bit like a CEO that can't walk from a deal. And and part of the reason I think he can't walk from the deal or, or is um, I, I do think that there are not that many opportunities. Well, I know there are not that many opportunities to acquire that many planes and that many gates at once. I mean, that's that's just kind of how the industry has shaken out. But it, it will not surprise me at all if this merger ends up a little bit like the Bud Light SAB, Mil- SAB Miller merger, which, or but AB and Bev rather, uh, which I'm not sure 3G is totally happy with at the end of the day. Well, they had to sell a lot. They my- had to sell so much to get it done. And then you have like, then you're a forced seller, right? Like the buyers know why you're selling. Like it's just, it doesn't typically, probably takes a while to get through that is maybe the best way to say it. Yeah. I mean, the the logic for them being allowed to merge at this point is basically bulletproof. Like, I mean, my view. My view is it's bulletproof. Like, you had all, you had all these arguments around what they were going to do. Like, the government's case was already extremely narrow. The go- the go- I mean, to summarize for everyone who's new to it, the government's case was basically two points, okay? One, you cannot be allowed to buy Spirit because Spirit is a unique competitor. They are the OG ultra low cost carrier. There's nothing quite like Spirit. When they enter a market, they bring rock bottom fares. They protect the little guy. They're unbundling. No one can unbundle like Spirit unbundles. Like they clearly have never even flown on Spirit. Like, but well, that is- Spirit, dude, Spirit, a lot of customers like Spirit, man, a lot. Just look at the load factors. They're all stupid. The people that like Spirit are very, very silly, I'm sorry to say. But that aside, the argument is twofold. One, Spirit is unique. You cannot be allowed to take them out because nothing can replicate Spirit's force in the market. That's basically a quote. And then two, there is presumptive anti-competitive over-concentration in a bunch of markets because uh, uh, JetBlue and Spirit overlap on 186 unique origin and destination pairs. 185, 186. Okay. And the presumptive concentration of combining in those key markets, by the way, 185 out of multiple, many thousands of routes across the entire nation. But forget that for a second. Okay, we're talking about a sub-segment of a few percent of the national market, but forget that. 185 routes, the, the presumptive concentration goes to unacceptable limits under the law. Those are the two points. So the first point we'll deal with in a second. The second point was basically dealt with by JetBlue and would ostensibly be dealt with them at the trial, they say, look, even on the narrowest of narrow definitions, which you don't agree with, but if we just take those origin and destination pairs of those 180 or whatever, only 51 are actually non-connecting routes, meaning, you know, 130 odd or whatever are 
yeah, we're competing on New York to New York to Los Angeles via Chicago, but because Chicago to Los Angeles has all this other traffic on it, you can't be we can't be said to be uniquely competitive on that route. Okay, but within that fifty-ish route subsection, or six have already churned off due to normal course of business since they actually did the analysis. So you know these things are dynamic. Routes are changing every day. It's not like there's a one static point in time. So, and then of the remaining forty-five, thirty-four will be divested by what they've announced. So if the divest if the divestitures close and there's no reason to say they wouldn't close, like not only that, but they're going to other ULCCs as well, by the way. So they're going to exactly the segment of the market that the government theoretically has a problem with. But so of those eight hundred and eighty odd routes, the core competition really only happens on fifty. And of those 50, 30 some have been divested, will be divested, and six have churned off. We're talking about 10 routes. We're talking about 10 routes. So normally, I would say, looking at precedent, a judge would look at this and say, why don't you just divest the other 10 routes? Just find someone else to buy them if that's the problem. And which point the government falls back on this other argument. And that's why they argue the divestages are not enough, which is, no, 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 no. No one's as good as Spirit. You see, if you divest these assets to someone other than Spirit, they, they won't run them as well. They're not as good. You know, they, they don't have that Spirit joie de vivre or whatever it is. <laughs> that's and that's not... when you say, look, that's, that's when this... you just say, but Spirit's going out of business. Spirit's going out of business if this deal doesn't go through. Like they literally said, we will have to raise prices. This was in their press release the other day. We will have to raise prices you know, we have to generate more revenue per, per seat. And they're dialing back growth. All these things that made Spirit unique are kind of moot at this point. Well, here's here's where I have some sympathy for the government case. I think that the ULCCs, the ultra-low-cost carriers as a segment, have, have forced uh, basic economy into the market. And I think basic economy is good for choice. And I think that if you remove the fleet of spirit, even if you cite the backlog of the future ULCCs, I, d I do think you're probably going to have a subscale ULCC market for a while. And that could ha have some consumer impacts that are not. That's how I would argue it. If I, if I, if I, had to, if I could draft my own uh, argument, that would be the argument. I would have no well, problem well, at, at any level letting Frontier and, and Spirit merge. I, I I guess I kind of understand the problem of letting Spirit and JetBlue merge, but I also understand that it looks like JetBlue is going to do enough to assuage the concerns. Well, look, they could also come out and say, cool, we'll guarantee unbundled routes on all our routes. So if it's unbundling or basic economy that you want, we'll just keep basic economy, which, yeah. by the way, they already do. I mean... Yeah, I think they're going to say what they have to say, right? And promise what they have to promise. But I, I do, I kind of understand the issue here. Because you know what I sucks? You know what yeah. sucks is if you're flying on Spirit you and you get a delay, they're, they're, they're so underfleeted that your, you know, your delay takes forever. If, the, if removing one major ULCC carrier creates that throughout the market, like the entire market becomes... Less, but then again, it's not like Frontier and Spirit have a bunch of cross bookings. I don't think they do have common. But the point, but, but the point you made is actually a point for JetBlue because they're making the argument the value proposition is not purely based on price, and therefore, if it's the actual delay and the lack of reliability, or the or the delays, you know, or yeah. the connectivity that you're paying for, then guess what? With a bigger, more national, wider carrier, you're actually going to get less theoretically less delays and better quality of service. 
So actually, that's an argument to allow them to merge, in my view. Yeah, but, as long as you can, as long as you can sell the bundled price at at the same or lower than the ULCCs do, which I do think a lot of the times basic economy comes pretty darn close. So we'll see. We'll we'll see. I mean, at this point, I'm far less worried about losing the trial. Of course, there are still risks there, but in my view, I'm far less worried about losing the trial than JetBlue just trying to get out of it somehow. Like, yeah. I don't think it'd be easy for JetBlue to get out of. Like, it's very hard to call a Mac a material adverse change. Um, but in terms of the world in which these things get alleged, like alleging a Mac is pretty easy. Proving a Mac in court is almost impossible, but alleging a Mac and destroying my equity value in the process is easy. <laughs> that's that's my principal concern. And it's abundantly clear that Spirit's equity value today is... So this is another analogy to the Twitter case, right? I mean, made kind of life-changing generational money on Twitter, but the the kind of risk all along with that trade was, well, if the Mac actually, tiny chance that it is, if the Mac actually can be proven or somehow allowed Elon to get out of it, Twitter equity is worth nothing, almost nothing. So, I mean, we're kind of on that similar path here with Spirit where, look, it's not going to trade at zero the next day if this deal breaks, but it's going to trade at equity stub option value. That's for sure. What's that? Three bucks, four bucks? Yeah, that's what I was looking at. I was looking to comp it uh, to frontier which is the most logical comp and i was like man this equity's got some serious downside if this deal breaks yeah one way to think about it is look at JetBlue. JetBlue trades at half of book value tangible book it's not even burning cash um spirit at half of tangible book would be like five bucks a share and spirit's in a much worse position so yeah. i think i think at this stage it would be i can't put a finger on where it would trade but if there was a zero chance of JetBlue going to say look if they allege a mac it's still not going to be priced at zero um, because they have a, they probably wouldn't win, and then that's one of to to to, to your argument, or I guess to to the the pro merger argument is, well, how does it serve JetBlue to pull a Mac now? They'd still be litigated to close. Spirit would definitely try to enforce at this point. They may still have to buy the assets anyway. It might take another year, and they'd be invariably much worse off in a year. Oh yeah, I think all the incentives are to to close. I really do. I mean, the CEO he's either going to get fired or he's not. You might as well do the deal. I, I mean, someone you never someone should have agreed the to the deal, but like he did. So you're gonna like stop now? I, I don't know. Maybe. Uh, look, I agree. I hope. I hope you're right. I hope you're right. I mean, it's just very rare. And going to the back to my 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 earlier point that these things are always there's always something. I mean, that's what makes the game the game, right? That's what makes it interesting. If these were all carbon copy situations exactly like one another, one, there'd be no opportunity to make money. And two, there'd be much less interest here. But here you have kind of all these interesting intersections of motive, financial logic, personal logic, kind of legal arguments, super interesting, complex, detailed legal arguments. And you also, it's dynamic. That's what's great about it. It's dynamic in that, you know, these companies are announcing earnings as we go along. And the business is changing by the day almost. So it's like these things are very dynamic and it's very rare. I cannot recall one that I've been involved in where literally the acquiring company would be, I mean, if they close the deal, they may well have to close it. It's like a massive millstone around their neck, but it's going to sink them to the bottom of the ocean probably if they close the deal. Like JetBlue would be like seven and a half bill and they'd be doing like more than that actually, what I'm talking about, five point, yeah, more, more, a few billion more. And they'd be doing pro forma EBITDA of a bill, under a bill, I think. It's kind of wild. No one is, uh, there's not like a ton of sellers. 
in JetBlue, the insiders. Where does where do the where do the JetBlue converts trade? I mean, one way that you think about this is you get long spirit stock and you short JetBlue debt. Because hmm. if the deal goes through, their debt will get crushed. And even if the deal doesn't go through, they're still kind of they're still a bit levered, right? And the interest rate environment is tough, so it's not like the bonds are going to rip. Maybe they do, but they only have one bond outstanding. The twenty twenty six converts. So I don't know where those trade. All the other debt is like EETCs or private, you know, term loans or whatever. Hmm. The 2026, uh, what, 750 million senior unsecured? Yeah. yeah. It is, yields 15.8%. Trades yeah, at okay. 60, so that, look, 70 that's... cents on the dollar. That's that's already pricing in the deal getting done. But see, see, that's interesting because that that's pricing in Spirit senior secured eight percent of twenty twelve twenty five. Okay, so Spirit has a few bonds outstanding. The eight percent senior secured, so it's secured by the loyalty program, uh, and it has a second lien on a bunch of the. Un- I think it has a second lien on a bunch of the unencumbered assets at Spirit, which last I checked were about five hundred million, maybe a bit more. So that bond is trading at eighty. 87 or something it's trading not quite 15 percent yield but trading teens low teens yield which one are you looking at the 25 yeah the 25 eight percent of 25s so that's super senior right but at a much worse entity like a much more stress entity like JetBlue standalone today is modestly levered but nothing scary right like lots of options okay so you have a 2026 senior unsecured piece of debt which by the way the, the, there isn't a huge amount of Secured debt ahead. I mean, there's the EETCs, which are backed by the aircraft, but I'm I'm talking about unsecured debt against the unencumbered assets. I don't believe there's a huge amount of bank debt ahead of you, and it needs to double-check that. But yeah, so a much better credit out a year of an entity that's going to merge with the really shitty credit is trading wider. So it seems to me that the debt market is already pricing JetBlue closing this deal, right? Or- I don't know. I've got... I'm looking at Spirit, the 2025, maybe I'm not looking at the right bond, but I've got it at trading at a 15% yield also. But well, that's I, what I'm saying. I could be that's wrong. That's what I'm saying. Okay, Spirit okay. is invariably a much worse credit. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah, Spirit yeah. standalone is almost bust. Okay. In my view. Um, not almost, but I mean, they'd be going concerned in a year if, if things don't improve, okay? So that bond standalone should not be trading tight to JetBlue. The fact that JetBlue is trading, I mean, it's a similar maturity. It's a year or different. But yeah, okay. Bond- You're saying if the credit market did not think this deal would go through, it would not be putting, it would not be, uh, JetBlue would not be trading at this level of distress. No way. No yeah. way. That would be trading 10%, sub 10% yield, like lower, oh. tighter. So so, so that the, the debt market is pricing in a pretty meaningful chance that this deal is going through. And the equity, spirit equity is tricing in like a 30, 35% chance this still goes through, in my, in, according to my math. So there's probably a trade there. There's probably a trade where you can do something on the bonds versus the stock, but above my pay grade. Yeah, I mean, just for context, uh, Delta, which is obviously like the best of the best in that industry, but their 2026 bonds are look like they're yielding 7.1%. So that's a, that's a big spread. I mean, dude, get 7% to own Delta credit. It's pretty good. Yeah, it doesn't seem terrible, right? It's like you actually get paid on it. No, I think but the probability you go, why, you don't get... Why, why own that? Wouldn't you own treasuries at 5%? <laughs> yeah. 
Well, soon enough, uh, the corporates will be better than the sovereign, but um, I, you're, I don't think you're wrong. I don't, yeah. It's an interesting time. They always are, but I, I don't know. That was a fun little discussion. I hope somebody got a peek into your mind. I appreciate it. Yeah, man. Thanks. Yeah. Thanks. I hope it went in directions you wanted to go in. Yeah, it definitely did. I liked I liked that last little one. That was good. And this time I let you talk more, which is a, a positive. So how's life? You good? I can go can go hours. Yeah, it's good. It's good. I mean, yeah, trying to decide what the next move is, right? So so we're in Tokyo and my, my kids are two and four. And so the older one is going to school in twenty twenty five kindergarten. So we're we're kind of planning on moving back to Australia at this stage, but like I bought a house in Sydney, it's where I'm from. But um, yeah, this whole this whole latest geopolitical stuff has kind of got me. I mean, not that Australia is super dangerous. I mean, it's not that, but there were some obviously some negative reactions to recent events that kind of shocked a lot of people in, in that community, as many communities did. And um, Japan, the safety premium in Japan is looking a hell of a lot better. Let's just put it that way. Huh? Interesting. Interesting. Yeah, I'm I'm super bullish on Japan, man. Like I, I I have almost no investments in Japan other than kind of currency and I, I rent here, right? I don't own any assets in Japan. Nevertheless, it's just crazy. The value proposition in Japan is just just makes no sense. It just is so stupid. Like I told this anecdote on Twitter and <laughs> someone got mad at the guy who who was the subject of the anecdote. I think he got mad, but he he kind of got a little bit upset, but basically this guy came to visit me from New York, not to visit me. He was in town and I had lunch with him. And, uh, you know, he's a hedge fund guy, really successful guy, young guy, whatever, has has means, right? And he's based in Boston or New York or something. And we go out for lunch. We just go to this random random place, like not a, not a fancy place, just a tempura udon place, like a typical kind of lunch spot. And, you know, each lunch is like 1,500 yen. Okay, ten a thousand yen, fifteen hundred yen. So it's like seven to ten dollars, and you know, for fifteen hundred yen, you get a full meal. You get like a tray, and on the tray you get the noodles, and you get the tempura, and you get the soup, and you you know, there's like three or four things. Hmm. So it's a, it's a great deal. It's all delicious, obviously. He's looking at the menu, so I look at the menu. I'm like, okay, I'll have that udon tempura set, thanks, and a glass of water. And he looks at the menu. He's like, okay, I'll have the vegetable tempura, and I'll have the meat tempura, and I'll have the pumpkin tempura and then i'll have the soup and he orders three soups and he he, he he keeps going and he orders like seven different things and we're at this tiny little table and he the, the lady's like brings seven dishes and then i said to him i said dude why did you order seven lunches like a psychopath and he said you don't understand in new york each one of these things would cost like 50 dollars yeah okay i'm getting 300 dollars worth of food and it all tastes way better for like i'm getting 300 worth of food for 40 dollars. it's like it just doesn't make sense this stuff i have to try everything i have to try one of everything it's just too it's just too too good and like that anecdote repeat that a thousand times literally every single person coming to japan on vacation and there's tons of tourists with the n at 150 they say the exact same thing like i don't understand i go to like a high-end steak restaurant and i have a beautiful piece of wagyu and it's like 50 dollars you know, whatever it is. I mean, of course, there's very high in places, but they go to a really nice restaurant and they have some kind of delicious meal, even gourmet or not gourmet, and it costs like some tiny fraction of what it costs in. Obviously, New York is expensive, but 
the interesting thing this time is almost all of them are saying not just about fancy food or dining. They're like, listen, I go to the 7-Eleven and I just buy a bottle of water and it's like 100 yen. Hmm. You know, so it's 70 cents. In New York, it's like $2.50. And, you know, in Australia, they'll charge you $3, $4 for a bottle of water. It's literally four times the price. Hmm. And look, some of that is economies of scale. It's a much bigger market. A lot of it, food is produced locally. But it's just the wrong price. Like, inflation has happened for a number of years now, noticed or unnoticed in, in foreign markets. And it hasn't happened in Japan. And there's going to be a massive transfer of value from people who and you know this is going to happen quickly and it's going to happen slowly but people you know do it by via buying real estate in Nisiko or these ski towns and they do it via traveling to Japan and consuming goods in Japan they do it by buying real estate in Japan and ultimately trying to move here or whatever it is so these things will equal out i'm no i'm far from a currency trader i know nothing about currencies every time i trade a currency i lose money so don't rush out and buy the yen but yeah it's very rare in my in my kind of 15, 20 year relationship with Japan. And in that time, I've lived abroad and come back. So, you know, I've lived in Japan full time for on and off for seven years total. But I've never seen an environment where prices in Tokyo are literally half the price of price in New York City. Like just as hmm. a two data points. Normally, Tokyo is mostly expensive versus New York, just yeah. on the ground. Whether that, it be that was hotels, my perception. Food. Yeah. For most of the last 20 years, it's been either more expensive or parity, let's say. Now it's half the price, half. Like you go to a Starbucks here in Japan, you go to a Starbucks, so equivalent level of quality, and you pay a thousand yen, you get a coffee, you get one or two coffees and one like food item, a thousand yen. In hmm. US dollar terms, that's six dollars, six dollars fifty. What do you I, get for six dollars fifty at Starbucks? I, I get the opportunity to jump behind the counter and, and serve myself. No, I don't know. You probably get two coffees. You get two coffees, two venti blondes for six dollars. But you can't get anything fancy. You can't get any. No, no, it's seven fifty. Seven fifty for one or for two? You can get two. You can get two. But these are like the drip. You you're not getting anything. You're not getting any pumpkin spice latte or anything like that, or any cold brew. I see. I see. Cold brew. You're at like. I think you're. I I think you're probably around like five bucks. I haven't been to. I go to Starbucks a lot less frequently now. I don't have a lot of reasons. What do you think about this? Um, you buy into the corporate, um, what is it? Like the discipline and like moving people to the prime exchange and off the prime exchange, kind of shaming some of the companies. Do you think that's going to matter? Yeah. I mean, it's, look, it's one of these things where it's definitely a positive. Okay. Like you'd rather have it than you wouldn't. I'm not going to say it's negative. Um, do I think I should caveat these comments like if you're kind of a long-term investor and you're playing in large caps and you're looking for a reason to get more bullish on stocks that are already you know cheap or doing well that's a great tailwind to have do I think it's a panacea that's going to cure structural attitudes towards shareholders in Japan no do I think it's going to in the in the game I play the value extraction game as opposed to the ride-along game right so a lot of these guys they Value act or whatever, okay? They no 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 one really wants to get their hands dirty. Meaning they 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 don't want to be seen as the bad guy, which I understand, right? They 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 have outside investors. They raise a huge amount of money. They want to work with management. They don't want to work against them. They're aware to the cultural um, peculiarities or cultural uh, values in Japan that are different. So they're never going to go activist in the sense that they're going to try and kick out the board or whatever. So for them, of course. This is a great tailwind because it's kind of like 
an internal change. It's promoted from within. Unfortunately, my cost of capital is higher than that. Like if, if, if value add takes a position in Olympus or in um, 7-Eleven, and it, they've been frustrated in that one, but it, if it takes them five years, okay, they, they have the patience for that. I'm, I'm more impatient. My cost of capital is extremely high. Like I, I don't want to lock up capital for that long. And if I do, I need a really good reason. I'm gonna, definitely going to get it out. So at my end of the pond, call it sub 500 million market caps, it's a much more glacial pace of change. It's a much mm. more glacial pace of change. And there's there's a few things, reasons why that's the case. One is necessarily larger companies, more multinational global companies, which are listed on bigger exchanges, tend to have more diverse shareholder bases or diverse perspectives anyway, just from years of being larger companies. So they're more aware and they're also more aware and more more affected by this kind of TSC change in policy. Like what is a hundred million dollar company based in freaking Fukuoka care about being on the prime exchange or not? They're already some kind of little local sports team that they sponsor the sports team. The guy plays golf with the mayor of the city. Um, you know, he's not, they're not graduating to sell their product in San Diego in a year anyway. Oh, you know what I mean? Like there, of course there are some exceptions, but like there's all these podunk little junky companies where they're someone's personal fiefdom or they're the town's personal fiefdom. They don't care about what exchange they're listed on. Their shares barely even trade or they hardly even trade. So there's a whole tale of Japanese net nets, 100, 100 plus of them, where, again, the value is there in plain sight. There's no debating the value, but it's how do I extract the value? Do I think these current rules, which mostly affect the larger cap companies, mostly, um, do I think that's going to somehow filter down to the, to the dregs and affect change? Yeah, maybe in some kind of mild positive way, but... You know, I'm looking, I'm looking to get in there and really extract the value, you know, like I'm not looking to ride along while some uh, 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 manager who doesn't own shares in the company, who's kind of, if he's increasing the dividend payout ratio from 15 to 20%, that I'm going to go away and be quiet. It's not really my style. Um, because I, I look, I, I, yeah, I don't have a broad enough mandate for that. I don't have the ability to spread my eggs around a hundred different baskets while I wait for that to happen, you know, I kind of pick my spots, be a bit more tactical and try and extract the value for myself. So from a selfish or a personal perspective, doesn't really affect, I mean, there, there is a couple of interesting situations in Japan that I have been involved in, but, and I mean, they're kind of in the weeds. So I don't know how interested you, you guys are or your audience would be, but I mean, some of this stuff is just, if you could actually get in there and kind of get creative you could create a lot of value in a real hurry. So, so there's a um, Itoen. Have you heard of the company called Itoen? Mm. I- Itoen makes the the most the best selling tea drink in Japan. It's a consumer staple. Well, oh, it's okay. a consumer discretionary, I guess. Um, they have a huge market share in tea, green tea, like huge. This is a company Coca Cola would love to buy. They have their own distribution. They have their own tea masters who conduct classes around the country explaining the wonders of Japanese tea. So they have this brand of tea called Oi Ocha. Ocha just means tea, green tea. And they sell it in bottles. You buy it for, you know, it's delicious green tea, you know, non-sugary, whatever. And, you know, it's kind of your typical sleepy Japanese, I don't want to say mini conglomerate. They also own a coffee chain. They have a few other brands like vegetable juice, whatever, um, consumer packaged goods. But most all their pro- most all their profits come from, like 80 plus percent of the profits come from the tea business. And... Um, 
you know, it's a typical sleepy underowning Japanese corporate controlled by Japanese family. You know, they own like 30% of the stock directly, another 20% of the stock through their charity, whatever it is. So they own 40 to 50% of the company. Okay, so it's a controlled company, for want of a better word. It doesn't trade particularly cheaply. I haven't looked it up recently. Maybe I should pull it up. But last I saw it traded at, you know, 20 times earnings or something. Man, and it's been higher than that. I'll just pull it up right now. Ito N. Stock price is 2593. Okay, 2593. It's a 4.7 billion market cap. Uh, it's actually fallen off. Okay, so yeah, so it's a. Uh, look, it trades 400,000 shares a day, stock price 41. So it trades like um, $15 million a day, and the market cap is about $4 billion. So, you know, it's it's a mid cap by, by US standards. It's not. Not small, not in kind of my typical neck of the woods. And uh, it's not particularly cheap. What's interesting is the sharehold, the, 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 the share structure. Itoen is the last company in Japan to have a preferred share category. They issued a category of preferred shares um, 15 years ago or something, maybe longer, as a kind of poison pill because they issued... It's a long story, but basically they were worried they were going to get taken over by a Coca-Cola or whatever back hmm. in the day. So they issued preferred shares gratis, gratis to their shareholders at the time. Obviously, the, the main shareholder was the, the founder, right? So he got a bunch of them. And um, they issued them at a massive discount. So the preferred shares are illiquid. So the, the main equity is 2593. The uh, preferred share is 25935, I think. Um, so it's not as liquid. It doesn't trade 15 bucks a day. Maybe it trades like a million dollars a day. So it's like a huge liquidity premium on the main share. But this thing, same economic rights, same economic rights, but a better dividend. So you get whatever the common dividend is, you get that plus 20 yen or something, right? So it's, it's either the same, but it's actually a superior economic return. And that trades at, guess where that trades? That trades at no 1,800 idea. yen. And it trades at 1,800 yen. So if you look at the valuation of the company, it's 4.7 billion through the common and it's two-thirds less through the preferreds, okay? Exact same economic, no, not exact same, superior economic interest through the press, just worse liquidity. So what can you do with this? What can you do with this? Well, there is a provision in the docs where if the free float of the prefs falls below a certain percentage, which is not actually that low. It's like 20% or something, 20, 25%. It's, it's a rule of the Tokyo Stock Exchange that every stock has to have at least a free float of 25% or whatever it is, okay? And you can def- the free float is defined as shares in the general pool, not owned by insiders. That's one of the categories. There's a few other categories. But basically, shares that haven't traded in a certain number of years fall as well. Okay, so my idea was, okay, you go to the company and say, look, your preferred shares are a huge drag on your cost of capital. In the spirit of corporate reform and normalizing corporate um, shareholder governance and removing this impediment to full explication of corporate value, you should do something about these preferred shares. They literally trade at 70% discount to the common with the same economic interest. If you can figure out a way to get these shares delisted, right, then the provision in the docs means they'll automatically be converted to common shares. You can force the company effectively to give you par. Hmm. you'll put in your preferred shares, you buy them at 1800 you put them in, you get something trading at 4700 Now, obviously, the share price of the, prefer, the, of the common will come down because there's a lot of value that will transfer from common owners to prefer, prefer owners. But nevertheless, one, 
you can make this a historical argument. There are no other preferred shares in Japan. It's a massive weight. Two, it's trading in huge discounts. Doesn't do you any good. Okay, there's no there's no benefit to you as a as an entity. You can't raise capital here. They were issued as a mistake. You should get rid of them. Three, the largest owner of the preferred shares is actually a charity. The founders' charity. So if you maximize the value of the preferred shares, you're actually putting money in a charity's pocket. Okay, there's not a bunch of foreign hedge funds. Yeah, some of them are owned by hedge funds. I, I own none of them, by the way. I used to own some. So you're not putting money in a bunch of vultures' hands. So I went to the company and I actually talked to them about this. I said, look, this is what you should do. You should either tender for the preferreds, borrow a bunch of money at 0% or whatever in Japan, tender for the preferreds and do a levered recap essentially and buy them back or otherwise someone will come along and try to acquire enough to consolidate the float, to force the TSC, to delist the equity, to force you to pay par. Pretty complex strategy, but interesting, right? Look, there's... $500 $500 million on the table for someone here. The, the, the preferred shares are about, what are they? They're, they're not that small as a percent of the total number of shares outstanding. It's like 20% or something. So it's a $5 million company, maybe 700 million of prefs or whatever, 600 million, something like that. So you would need to find a way to concentrate the flow. But given the ownership blocks already there, you'd offense, essentially, if you could find a block seller, this is an interesting trade, you could maybe acquire five to 10% of these and then you either force the company to kind of engage with you in a dialogue or you force them to increase the float. The only way they can realistically increase the float is to sell shares from inside their ownership group, right? So you either force them to take a big loss or they sell new shares. Why would they sell new shares at a 75% discount? It makes absolutely no sense. That would be horrendous. And also in the current political and climate, that's why it's important. If you did this strategy, and then the management's response was, well, we're just going to sell you shitloads more shares. We're going to crush the price. We're going to destroy the foreign invader. Oh, yeah, by diluting everyone down 80% from where the common shares trade, that would not go politically in the current environment. You can make a very easy argument. You're just burning people. You're just burning shareholders for no reason to entrench yourselves and a backward-looking historical um, share structure that makes no sense, anachronistic share structure. So you could make a strong political argument. Now is the time to try it. But even so, you'd rather have management do it uh, proactively because there's a lot of mechanical issues with A, acquiring the shares, B, ways they can screw you, and then D, downside, right? Like once you buy them, you can't get out of them. Like they're so illiquid. If I bought 5% of this company, they're either buying them back off me or I'm just owning them. Yeah. So like these kind of things, they're out there and I look at them and I was involved in this situation for a time and tried to make it work, but... Uh, even something like that was a bit too tricky, it turned out, in, in, in reality, when I tried to make it work. Hmm. Interesting. Well, th- that is, I'm, I'm going to wrap it on that. But this, this has been a good conversation, man. I hope you've had fun. I, I enjoy chatting with you. You're doing a lot more interesting shit than I am. <laughs> I got to, man. I got to pay the bills. Yeah, college, well, college ain't cheap these days. Yes, well, same, same. Uh, but I got to figure out uh, I don't know. I maybe I got to figure out my solution. We'll see. It's not doing what you're doing yet. Uh, we'll we'll see if I ever get there. I think uh, the podcast probably isn't going to pay the bills anytime soon. So we'll see. Never say never. Keep a keep fighting the good fight. I will do. All right, man. Have a good one. Thanks, Thanks for man. stopping by. Take care, buddy. Thanks for having me. See ya.